Welcome to Rewind Design, a podcast dedicated to discovering the stories of Cottage Country in Ontario. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you're a new listener, my name is Katie McNabb and I'm a local interior designer who is on a mission to find stories of how the heck everyone and everything ended up here in cottage country. Every two weeks, I speak to a new guest about their journey to cottage living. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram at rewinddesign.interiors or you can send me an email to katie at rewinddesign.ca to share your own story or become a part of my email list. Welcome to Rewind Design, a cottage history podcast with your host and local interior designer, me, Katie McNabb. Today, we will be putting the spotlight on a historical Perry Harbor, also known as Perry Sound now, cottage. Join me as I navigate the waters and go back in time to explore this whimsical farmhouse on the bay. This episode of Rewind Design is so exciting for me. Not only is it close to home for me, but Patty's family history dates back to the 1800s when Perry Sound was only accessible by steam paddle boat. This story of perseverance, adventure spirit, is so compelling and true to this area and the generation of people that came here. This episode will be split into two parts as, after I met with Patty, I realized just how much history this property held and how there would be no way I'd fit it all into one hour. Patty initially reached out to me via email with the following message. Hello, Katie. Our house, or cottage, is on the northeast-ish side of Glen Burnie Marina. It was built by my great-great-grandpa in 1894. It was the first house on Rose Point. Actually, my grandpa bought the land from Mr. Rose. Grandpa and his children informally started calling it Rose Point, and it stuck. My ancestors lived here until 1916 or so, then it became a summer home. It has been handed down through the generations ever since. Let me know if I can be any help to you. This is a wonderful idea. My guess is that you'll be inundated with everyone's love for this area. Thank you, Patty. Part 1. From Ettrick, Scotland to Perry Sound, Canada. The story begins in a similar fashion to my own history, with Patty's ancestors hailing from Scotland and Germany, the same mix of cultures I'm actually also from. Curiosity compelled me to read further and further into the pattern of emigration to cottage country. How did Patty's family find their way here? How did they end up in a farmhouse on the undisturbed Rose Point, in one of the most beautiful protected parts of the South Channel? How did they end up on the infamous Wapano Paddle Steamer, which transported passengers across the rough seas of Georgian Bay from Collingwood to Perry Sound, before there were railways or roads? The story dates back to 1894, when Patty's now-summer cottage was built by her great-great-grandpa, Frank, and his wife, Mary, to use as a year-long home while he was working for the Midland and North Shore Lumber Company. This original farmhouse was the first house on Rose Point in Perry Sound, also known as Perry Harbor at that time. 
he purchased approximately 150 acres of land stretching from the neighbor's property to the girls' camp. Frank Hogg bought the land from Annette Rose, who was the widow of Martin Rose, picked a really nice spot on the water, and built the house. His oldest daughter, Wilhelmina, Patty's great-great-aunt, wrote about how Rose Point got its name in her autobiography, and I quote, The prettiest point we called Rose Point. It attracted the eye of W.F. Thompson, a hotel man, who bought it and built a summer hotel on it. He wondered what to call it, and Dad said, We call it Rose Point. And Mr. Thompson said, Good, Rose Point it is. And there it is, today, on any map of the vicinity. Patty's ancestors lived in this home until around 1916, when they moved south to the States and landed in Cleveland, and then to Florida, using the Rose Point home as a summer residence from then on. Patty mentioned her great-great-aunt, Wilhelmina, also known as Billy, had written an autobiography outlining her life experience and her early memories of living in Perry Sound and Georgian Bay. The book is aptly named Early Settlers in Ontario, Canada by Wilhelmina Ramsey Hogue Sias. So of course I became curious and needed to get my hands on a copy of the book, so I ordered a copy and it arrived at my door days later. Not only is Wilhelmina's story extremely fascinating and captivating, but she is a talented writer with beautiful flowing text that I could just not stop reading. So I've decided to dedicate this episode to her and will be reading the following chapters from her autobiography. Georgian Bay. In July 1615, Champlain, having traveled all the way from Montreal by the way of Ottawa River, saw before him, to the south and west, a body of water, beautifully blue, extending to the horizon. It was the first of the Great Lakes to be discovered. Today we call it Georgian Bay. His canoes threaded their way through the maze of islands that fringed the northeastern shore of the bay, passed what is now Perry Sound, and went to Huronia, the land of the Hurons, near Midland to the southeast. Commander Bayfield of the Royal Navy, who was appointed by the Canadian government to make a survey of Lake Huron and Georgian Bay in 1822, discovered that beautiful sheet of landlocked water when he rounded the point we know as Kilbear Point, and named it Perry Sound after Sir William Edward Perry, the Arctic explorer. Georgian Bay has area and depth, qualifying it to rank as one of the Great Lakes, and the people living on its shores never think of it as being part of Lake Huron. There is good reason for this. It is 120 miles long and about 50 miles wide from the eastern shore to Grand Manitoulin Island. But the whole region, as far up the shore as the Sioux, is of the same formation and seems to belong altogether. Manitoulin is 107 miles long and from 4 to 25 miles wide. The whole of these shores, as full as fjords and inlets as the coast of Norway, many islands, 30,000 charted, are strewn along the whole north shore. The route through them requires great skill and watchfulness to avoid the many rocks, shoals, but they are also a shelter in time of storm. Through this whole region, which is in the Great Laurentian Shield, lying in a half circle around Hudson Bay, there were originally lofty mountain ranges, so geologists say thrown up by great internal forces, indicating tremendous convulsions of nature. Ages beyond computation have worn them down to rounded hills and tablelands, covered now to a great extent by forests and much luxuriant 
vegetation. But the rocks is very near the surface, and sticks out everywhere. Needless to say, it is not a good farming country, and yet the fruits and vegetables and grains grown there are of the best. During the short growing season, seeds planted come up in no time here, and mature rapidly. Wild berries, raspberries, huckleberries, strawberries, gooseberries, cranberries are abundant, and rhubarb grows the largest stalks I've ever seen. From Manitoulin Island to Cabot's Head on the Ontario side is a great barrier of rocks, shoals, and islands, almost separating the bay from Lake Huron. The transition from Georgian Bay to Lake Huron is so sudden as to be startling. Passing through the channel, the scene has completely changed. Before you were broad, open waters with not a sight of the sandy beaches of this lower region. Not a rock, nor an island. Nothing but water. It is no wonder that those who live and labor around the bay think of it as apart from Lake Huron. It is their own great all-Canadian lake. Sailing across Perry Sound, the ship passes through a narrow channel and enters an inner harbor to the east of it, into which a river flows from the north. There in the valley of the river, surrounding by hills on a spot that has been an Indian trading post and meeting place, a mill was built. It was the lure and the wealth of the pine trees that brought the lumbermen in civilization to that distant outpost. The river offered water, power for sawmills, and a waterway down which to float the logs from up the valley. The first sawmill was built in 1857 by J.W. Gibson. It was a small water power mill. A dam was built across the river where rapids formed at its mouth, which supplied the power. They built also a blacksmith shop, barn, stable, boarding house, store, and seven or eight log houses. In 1863, the Gibsons sold their mill to John and William Beatty. The Beatties owned all the land on which the village was built, in large timber units. William Beatty was always considered the founder and was known as Governor Beatty. He was a man of education, integrity, enterprise, and foresight and his wife was one of the most perfect ladies I've ever known, in the true sense of the word. She was educated, refined, friendly, and unselfish. She came there as a bride, the daughter of one of Toronto's mayors, Mayor Bose. She had lived for some time in Paris and spoke French fluently. They belonged to the Methodist Church, and Mrs. Beatty played the organ for years, taught a class in Sunday school, and entered into all the activities. The town site was surveyed, and streets were laid out in regular order, bordered with maple trees. It was named Perry Sound. The Beatties were naturally against the liquor traffic, and Governor Beatty had a clause inserted into all deeds stipulating that no liquor should be sold on the land, on pain of forfeiture. This clause has never been successfully contested, and the main part of town is today without a place where liquor can be bought. Of course, licenses have been granted in the next township and on the outskirts of Perry Sound, but... As the place is strung out along the harbor with hills between, it is a long way to go for a drink. And the children grew up with no saloons in sight, nor drunken men around. Law is law in Canada. The maple trees were quite large and shady when we arrived. The roads, of course, were unpaved. Pure, unadulterated sand. But there were board crossings and sidewalks on the main streets. There were two general stores belonging to the lumber companies, well stocked with everything we needed. Also meat markets, shoe stores, drug store, watch repair, millinery, 
one bookstore, Mr. Holmes's bookstore, where we got all our slates, pencils, and books, also our Christmas cards and Valentines, and other things. The only hotel was the Seguin Hotel, on the corner of Seguin Street and James Street. It was a homey-looking place, more like a boarding house, and was run by the Kirkman family, whose daughter, Ellen, was my teacher in school, who I admired so much. There were three churches, Methodist, Presbyterian, and Epicostal, or as we called it, the Church of England. There was a public hall called Duke's Music Hall, after the man who owned it. The three lumber mills, with their lumber yards and public docks, accompanied the shoreline on three sides of the harbor the south side being still beautifully natural. A grist mill was built over rapids a mile up the Seguin River. At the mouth of the river was the big water mill where dad worked. There was a dam across the river mouth with spillways and chutes to carry the logs. The river was divided by a wooden floating walk. There was a bridge farther up the river connecting Seguin Street with the road on the east side. I crossed that bridge thousands of times, going to church, school, and almost every other place I went. We first lived for several years on the west side, but when dad lost his job because he didn't vote for Mr. Miller, the president of the Perry Sound Lumber Company, we went over to the Midland and North Shore on the east side of the harbor, and we lived over there near the office and mill and crossed the bridge daily. Perry Sound. Perry Sound was an interesting place, and the people we found there were remarkable. Separated from the outside civilized world by 60 miles of water, with 75 miles of very rough country from the nearest railroad, with six or seven months of winter when the bay was frozen over, and the only way either out or in was over that long, rough road by stage, it was no place for the soft or timid. The men and women who went there to make their homes were pioneers and adventurers at heart. They had individuality, ideas, and purpose. They were naturally intelligent. A few were well-educated and had worldwide interests. They were mill owners and managers, men of strong personality and ability, teachers in the school, one after another, teaching me a little bit of truth and giving me another outlook on the great wide world, each one meaning something very special to me even now ministers and their families seeming more than usual to work together irrespective of denomination, doctors and lawyers who came in those early days and stayed on the rest of their days, among our best and most cherished French. The hill spread over a large area. It had been covered with trees, and they'd been cut down, leaving many stumps. The rock formations appeared everywhere, smooth and rounded, with grass and shrubs between and many junipers. Up that hill we climbed many Sundays afternoons with Dad. At the top, Nearest the town was a tower called Observatory, for observation of weather, conditions, and flying of signals and warnings. It was planted on a solid rock of granite, with wide seams of white crystal, tinged with white and black, and sheets of mica, and we could peel off. There were large boulders scattered around and many beautiful stones that we played with, by the hour, and we always carried as many as we could home for Mother's rockery. We could see the harbor from there, but the sound was obscured by the trees that grew. It was quite a walk to the high bluff overlooking the sound and sunset. Our hotel was later built, just where we used to sit, called the Belvedere, and that section became one of the nicest residential parts of the town.
Our plain, awkward little house had no style and no conveniences, but it was not long before it began to look homelike and comfortable. Mother had a gift that way. The furniture was ordinary, and there was no more of it than it was necessary, so it was not cluttered. The windows were full of flowering plants, ferns, and ivies. There were geraniums of all colors, chrysanthemums, begonias, foliage plants, fuchsias loaded with blossoms, and most of the old-fashioned houseplants. All winter long, Mother kept them from freezing. During a severe cold spell, every one of them had to be moved to a warmer place, where they would stay sometimes for days. Seldom were they frozen, and how we did appreciate them when they were all in the windows again. Outside also, the place was redeemed by Mother's flowers. The house was set far back on the lot so that instead of a lawn in front, there was a vegetable garden, which was a necessity as each one had to grow most of its own. Father took charge of that but he left a wide border along the path on either side and in front of the house for flowers. There, Mother planted all the slips and seeds she could get, exchanging hers with all her friends and neighbors. She always accompanied her callers to the gate in pleasant weather, and they seldom went away without some little offering, a flower, a slip, or a few seeds. When she called on them, she was sure to return home with a handful of treasures. In the early morning, after Father went to the mill, and before we children were up, she loved to work out amongst them. Often I ran with the path to her in an ecstasy of delight over the loveliness of the morning and my young and pretty mother. The move to Perry Harbor. We were all packed and ready to go aboard the Magnetowan at 2.30 a.m. I remember the friends coming in to say goodbye and the rush at the last moment going out into the night and down James Street to the dock where we saw the Magnetowan moving away and realizing we were just five minutes too late. Next morning, Dad walked in with a queer smile on his face and said he had just accepted a position with the Midland and North Shore Lumber Company, and instead of going west, we would move over to Perry Harbor. He was to be bookkeeper and office manager, and the house was next door to the office. We knew almost less about that part of town than we did about out west, but the house pleased us. It was quite nice considering the time and place, with eight rooms and a veranda both upstairs and down, full width of the house towards the harbor. We really enjoyed these verandas and rooms leading to them through French doors. There were green shutters on all the windows and the veranda doors. It was built right on the street with a closed porch over the front door. On the lower veranda, Dad put up a swing. I took care of babies by the hour on that swing, singing to myself and the baby all the songs I liked, dreaming dreams and building castles in the air. On the upper veranda, we kept track of all that was going on in the harbor and across on the opposite shore. Dad had a good telescope. He kept it in the bureau drawer near the door, and with it we could see boats out in the sound and their names. And when the first boat was expected, someone kept watch most of the time. In the parlor, we had stiff lace curtains at the two windows, a center table with books and an album, and a fancy lamp, and some chairs, and a horsehair sofa. In the hall in cold weather was a big heater and the stairway. 
In the living room was another stove and a big dining room table, around which we sat in the evening, studying our schoolwork and doing our exercises. In summer, the stoves were out for a short while, and there were more flowers in the room. On a hot day, Colin loved to clean these rooms and then adjust the shutters so that cool green light was over everything. Perry Harbor itself was about as barren and desolate a place as could be imagined. Mr. Beatty had had no hand in planning it. No one did. It just grew, like Topsy. A wedge of sandy land between these rocky hills and the harbor. Nothing was ever done to improve it, or even make the most of it. The Perry Sound Road circled around the big hill and turned east at the corner, which was the heart of Perry Harbor, and wound around hills and lakes for 75 miles until it reached the railroad. This next portion is an autobiography of Colen Child, which is Patty's great-grandmother. The house was painted white and had green shutters, or blinds, at all the windows, and on two double doors leading to the lower and upper verandas, and they were for use. I can still feel the coolness and restfulness of our rooms on hot days when the blinds were adjusted to keep out the glare of the sun. The verandas, or porches, added greatly to the attractiveness and enjoyment of our house. They faced the west overlooking the bay, and from there we could view the harbor life. Boats coming and going, tugs pulling, huge booms of logs, lumber barges, and their sailing vessels in tow, tying up at the different lumber yards to be loaded, and sailboats, rowboats, everything always doing something to claim your interest. From the upper porch, we used to watch from the appearance of the Northern Bell, a tri-weekly event behind Bob's Island. First, her mast would be visible, then a trail of smoke and a whistle as she rounded Three Mile Point. From the South Channel, the F.B. Maxwell, a sidewheeler, made daily trips Wilhelmina in this next clip uh, talks about her last year home in Perry Sound. I was beginning to feel a little restless, feeling that I ought to be doing something else. If I wasn't going to be married, father had bought 160 acres of land two miles farther down the shore from a Mr. Rose, the prettiest point we called Rose Point. It attracted the eye of W.F. Thompson, a hotel man who bought it and built a summer hotel on it. He wondered what to call it, and Dad said, We call it Rose Point. And Mr. Thompson said, Good, Rose Point it is. And there it is today on any map of the vicinity, popular with tourists and fishermen. Dad built a home on the other side of another point, not far from the hotel, which was called Ettrick, after one of our illustrious ancestors, James Hogue, the Ettrick Shepherd. It was a lovely spot in the summer but was hard on Mother and the young folks, as it was so far from all their interests in Perry Sound. I never really lived there and returned only for short visits, so I will leave it to the rest of the family to tell about it. (music) 
To see historical photos of Patty's Cottage, you can take a look at rewinddesign.ca and look out for episode number seven, Patty on the Point. I am sharing lots of photos of her current place as well as historic photos dating back to the late 1800s when her great-great-grandfather was there. You'll also see photos of Rose Point when it was completely barren because it had been completely logged, which is just so interesting to see now that Rose Point is completely lush again. So take a look at rewinddesign.ca and look out for Patty by The Point. Thank you so much for listening. That is a wrap for part one and stay tuned in two weeks for part two where I interview Patty herself and we talk all about her history and her life in Cleveland and basically how much she loves her cottage to this day after hundreds of years of use. So stay tuned in two weeks. Thanks guys! Thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this story, please give me a five star on Spotify. I would really appreciate it. It really helps um, me continue the podcast and keep it going. And if you would like to support this podcast, please follow along to patreon.com slash rewinddesign. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash rewinddesign. If you would like to support the show in other ways or share your own story, please send an email to katie, k-a-t-y, at rewinddesign design.ca or give me a call at 416-822-7489. Your donations help to run the podcast and costs associated with recording equipment and travel. 10% of all donations will be donated to the Georgian Bay Land Trust. Thank you so much. Your support means everything.